And welcome to the Two Medics podcast. Just a quick shout out to our sponsors, mah.uk.com for medical accountancy needs and also to lifelinehealthcaregroup.co.uk for the best locum rates. and welcome to another episode of the Two Medics podcast. My name's Beth and John. I'm an ex-neurosurgery trainee, a current GP trainee, and I like pickled onions, quiche, and would definitely eat sushi if it was on a pizza. Um, yeah, <laughs> my partner in crime today is... Shaking her head in disgust what? at sushi on pizza. No bad take. I actually disagree with everything you just said. You always, you always do. You always do. Introduce yourself anyway. Sorry. That's more important. <laughs> I'm Nina Jar. I am a GP with a special interest in emergency care. Although I probably do more mummying than doctoring, to be to be perfectly honest. Important on the side. Important question though, Nina. Do you like cream eggs? No, they suck. I always eat like the chocolate around. Chocolate shouldn't have goo in it, like white goo in it. That's just, it looks like bird poo. Mm. It tastes like it's oh. tastes like bird poo. Looks like bird poo. Eat the chocolate and then dispose of the goo. No, I th- yeah. I, the reason why I was yeah, I'm not surprised that you said that. You look the type that would not <laughs> not know something that's kind of good if it hits you in the face yeah no um no I yeah I was surprised that there was a lot of people on med twitter before easter kind of yeah dissing cream eggs and I had an inclination that you would (laughs) would be one of them as well I have to get something out there though I have to state the truth that mm. Coke Zero is better than Diet Coke. I'm sorry, okay, I just yeah, had to I get agree. my piece yeah. in there. That's one thing we can agree on, definitely. Coke Zero is better than Diet Coke, and cream eggs can get in the bin. Um, yeah, I'll, yeah. first bit was going so well. Okay, <laughs> should we finish up there then, Nina? Is that yeah. it? Should we just shut it down? Perfect. Oh, no, I've got something else to say. Oh, continue. We have a birthday girl in our midst, Miss Beth and John. You oh. turned to say it's a happy birthday. Gee, thanks. Do you feel more wise? Yeah, of Do course. You? I'm like the wisest person you'll ever meet. Um, well, no. it's all relative. Relative to me, actually, maybe. But um, no, you're definitely I, not the wisest. I feel considerably <laughs> older. My joints ache. My eyesight's going it's a blast like I love getting older it's total blast um but more congratulations though to everyone there was so many lovely posts this week wasn't there about people passing finals about people getting st3 numbers um so yeah huge congratulations I actually feel really proud because you get invested with everyone and then Oh no! And it's, yeah. <laughs> and it, do you feel like sometimes you? I feel like particularly when people are medical students, like you follow them over the years, yeah. don't you? And then it's like you know people post about going through finals and how difficult that is, and then you know you. I guess I was thinking back to about how much of a horrible time that was, and then um, and then those tweets that come and they've all passed, and it's such lovely, lovely news. It's so, so lovely, isn't yeah. it? Massive congrats to everybody. I'm very, very We're well really deserved. Really happy for you. Yeah. We are, yeah. That was one of the nicer things that happened on Med Twitter this week. It was a it was. huge really shitstorm, but that was one of the good things that came out of it. But, um, but yeah, it, we had Easter last weekend. Did you have a nice yeah, time? I did. How how was your Easter? 
it was really good. I, yeah, so it was my birthday just before and I managed to have a few days off work. So had, yeah, nearly a week off work, went home to my parents in South Wales, um, who I haven't seen in South Wales since last year. So that yeah, was really nice. You have been back for a while, have you? No, and my brother was home as well. So he lives in the States. I'd not seen him for nearly three years, obviously, because of the pandemic oh. and stuff. So yeah, that it was really good. It just goes too quick, doesn't it? Yeah. Overdosed on it chocolate. Really yeah, it was just, yeah. I don't know um, how I've not turned into like a chocolate egg. This year, more than most, I've had so... That's post-Watershed content, but... Did you have a good time, though? Because you went on holidays, didn't you? Were you in Morocco? Yeah, I was in Morocco, um, which was really nice, actually. I mean, we were lucky to to get to do it. We just found a really good deal, so Mm. we just kind of booked it more spur of the moment. Why not? Um, It was really nice, because now the kids are a bit older. They're eight and five, so we could actually travel properly, like the way we wanted to, so... They went mountain, they went trekking, hiking, oh. and like, so they, they did the full work, so really good. Awesome. So, yeah, How was your flight? Was there no no cardiac arrests? No, um, <laughs> no one bringing out their guitars and breaking into contemporary Christian music? Oh my goodness, did you see that? Oh my God, that was, that was horrendous. I, yeah, I don't know what I, I would lost do. It. I, I yeah. think I would have just sung along, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, you totally Still music would have. <laughs> You'd have been orchestrating the whole ordeal. <laughs> Yeah, flat. But I was flyings. the only one. I was the only one both times. I was the only one on on the entire plane. Oh my god! You say I always do that, and it it did oh, land babes. quite late. And I'm like, come on, everyone! I didn't say come on, everyone. I just <laughs> Come on, everyone! <laughs> I didn't say because I didn't say that. I'm not that bad. Oh, um, you're such a flat. weirdo. And then my husband was like, "Why do you think I sit in a separate seat?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mr. Jar, I'm fully yeah. on board with that. Yeah. Yeah, flying is not is not one of my hobbies. It takes me quite a bit of diazepam and a couple of wines to get on. So yeah, maybe I wouldn't have noticed the singing. I don't even oh, know. I'll go with you. Let's go together and then I will keep you distracted the thanks. entire time. You won't feel anxious thanks. at all. Oh, gee, thanks. Let's That's, do it. Yeah. I'll I'll keep a mental note of that one. Thank you. Okay with me. I'll just you? I'll just be asking for some tips from Mr. Jar. Like how many rows back do you sit? <laughs> Where's where's the safe zone? <laughs> as far away from me as possible, oh, he'll say. Oh yeah, no, I love you really. Of course, I'd let you sit next to me. No, you wouldn't. I would just you ask just for pretend more. You're not... <laughs> more diazepam. <Diazabar. laughs> <laughs> she's unconscious. No, she's just in a oh. very deep sleep. Just a very very deep sleep. But um, so yeah, we were we... the lucky ones who didn't have to work. We were this very Easter lucky. Weekend. Yeah, but, we were um... very very lucky. We were thinking of you guys who were working. Mm, well, yeah. we were thinking of you guys. Yeah, we um, were. If a four day four day weekend is no one's like cup of tea, is it really? No, absolutely not. We know how shit it can be working on a bank holiday at the best of times, mm. but a four day one is shit. Yeah. Of shit, really, isn't it? And if if you if you didn't work the bank holiday, you then have that dread. I don't know if you had it kind of, if you've returned to work yet, but... No, I'm still on your leave. Well, I did have that. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, Tuesday's my day off anyway, so I went back to work on Wednesday and I've only done like a three-day week and it's just been mayhem. It's it's everything that I was dreading and more. So it's nice to see that it's come through oh. for me. Oh, right. but um, with my work patterns, I never usually work the day after the bank holidays. But I was the on-call doctor 
always before mm. the bank holiday. So you're trying to get everything sorted out for yeah. like four days time, which is just... Yeah, it's not, not ideal. It's not, not ideal. ideal, is it? But there was um there was a tweet from Ruby who uh, the, which her Twitter handle sorry is at Ruby Mugal two, and she was working at one 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 over the weekend, and she tweeted that workload at one 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 is insurmountable. If you're waiting for a prescription, I'm working solo and doing my best. The queue is pages long, no extra cover. Have we created a need that never existed, or are we making sure it cannot be met? I can't tell anymore. Which, yeah, I felt that. I really felt that one. It sounded horrible. I mean, I've worked for 111. Yeah, I was going to say. I, what, I yeah. still do some shifts for them occasionally. Um, uh, what I are mean, they like? They're, they're not the best, I have mm. to say. They're yeah. not the best. Um, so yeah, they have different ways of working. So it's like a visiting shift or base shift. or um, mm. It sounds like what she was doing was the, the phone triage shifts and you go in and it's just I used to work on the it wasn't last year but I think I worked the year before over the Christmas the the Christmas perineum period as as you call it (laughs) um and it's it's terrifying it Mm. is terrifying to see those pages and pages and pages of patients that that require a call back that haven't been called back not terrifying as the clinician because you only work at your own pace and there's a kind of a group of you chipping away at at the same list but you think from a patient's perspective or oh my gosh if I was to get sick or my family Mm. was to get sick where that they're not going to be able to get the help that they need that was two years ago so got uh, who knows what it's like now but it must be significantly worse and it's just a mix of everything so Mm. you have real emergencies that sometimes haven't been triaged appropriately um, and p- people are actually quite quite sick. Yeah. Right at the extreme where you have the, the most simple things that sometimes aren't even truly medical that, that shouldn't be on the list, but they are. And yeah, how do you, you, can't, you can't tell people storm. to go away, can you? Like it's no. not. And I think that's where Ruby's comment about have we created a need that never existed? And it was some interesting responses to kind of the tweet. And it was saying that, you know, does 111 stop people from engaging their common sense? Because there's just this automatic reflex that, you know, you can ring up and someone will deal with your problem for you. Or I think someone else called it um, a portal for the worried well. But like you say, there's just that, it sounds like there's that huge, like, variety from one extreme to the next. So, you know, it's obviously it's vital for some people, isn't it? The thing is, I don't blame I don't blame patients at all because if you it, the worried well, they have a worry that it, it, it sometimes it's yeah, easy it's, for us to say the worried well yeah. because we we know that that issue is is not um, you know medically concerning, but the, the patient may not know that they're like a bit of arm pain or that little yeah. bruise they may have. Ha- they don't know necessarily that we we, sh- we shouldn't have those expectations on patients. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, to know necessarily what's appropriate and what's inappropriate um Mm. but I I think it's more the I think it's more the now culture and the expectation that Mm. they have a problem and (laughs) they want it sorted out now that almost like that Amazon click culture yeah and they, they want like an Amazon Prime GP don't they yeah, yeah from healthcare and that's just not that's just not how it works oh gosh no no definitely not but digressing slightly Something which I realised, and it seemed kind of a lot of people did as well, you know, whenever you have like a three-day weekend or a four-day weekend, 
when you go back to having a two-day weekend, like, it seems ridiculously short, doesn't it? It is ridiculously short. And you wonder how that's, like, like, how how do we possibly work five days? But actually, I've seen a few tweets about this before, like, ages and ages ago, about how we should really have a three-day weekend, because your first day, you're shattered from the week. You want to just chill out and relax and sleep and nothing day, yeah. The other day, you need to catch up on all your backlog of stuff, the house stuff, ironing, shopping, cooking. And then mm. where's your where's your playtime? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think for me, it would be like a day of doing nothing. That'd be my first day. My second day would be kind of, yeah, socializing, playtime, a bit of like good life admin, not the shitty stuff. And then my third day would be like half house stuff and then half worrying about the week ahead like I need a good half a day for that (laughs) I'd need to get all the work stuff done first on the second day so then I like to to procrastinate (laughs) so good at it I'm so good at it actually I might just have like the sleep day and then the two fun days and then forget all that yeah that can wait until another time the next weekend definitely but uh, there was a really good thread as well by Livy Rose I think it is yeah. And she tweeted, so I think she tweeted initially on the morning of Good Friday, and it sounds like she was obviously about to go into this kind of bank holiday weekend on call. And she essentially started a thread of medical crimes. And yeah, nothing changes, it seems, with medical ward cover. Same shit right. keeps coming up all the time. Um, so she spoke about things like um, regular ward teams not doing the TTO, and then that was handed over to her as the on-call team or um patients daily needing... UNEs over yeah. a four-day oh weekend. god yeah people needing cannulas and yeah just that stuff that it's kind of you've you, ha- you have a bit of resentment because you know maybe some of this stuff could have been sorted out yesterday and you're thinking like what were my colleagues doing yeah was there a particular bugbear that you had as a hospital trainee or a junior doctor that yeah so got to you I've not had them for a while, but I will inevitably come back to them as I go back to being a medical SHO <laughs> next rotation. So I'm about to go back into this all again. But yeah, my, one of my main ones was, aside from the TTOs, I think that's just a given now, like no one's ever going to solve that. It's the one where kind of you go to handover for the weekend and people come and present to you every single patient on the ward that everyone needs a daily review or everyone needs like daily UNEs like you said and mm. it's like that's a hard no from me that's just not yeah. not unless you've got a designated review person that is not yeah. happening and like I used to get I remember like sometimes actually being pulled up on it like oh you didn't review my patient on the weekend well it's like the ward staff you know I, I, I wasn't just sitting doing nothing and the ward staff weren't concerned so why like why would you? And in um, in neurosurgery, there was this weird thing where every single neurosurgical patient, even though there was like no, was just like one and a half regs on call over the weekend, every single neurosurgical patient needed a consultant review on a Saturday. And it's and we used to kind of trawl around these notes, and the review would literally be one word. It would just be continue. You'd have to write, yeah, you'd have to write a thing and they would all get audited. You had to write this whole passage in the notes. It was just an oh, absolute gosh. pain in the ass. But yeah, that's not, that's one thing I'm not looking forward to going back to next rotation. The one thing that scarred me, which is going to sound really silly, I don't even know if the juniors have it now, but on our surgical rotations, there's one consultant that insisted on having a blood book 
So, oh, um, yes. So we had box. to we had to get get the chase the blood results, and we had to write it in three places. So he wanted all the blood results written out physically in the patient notes. Yeah. Just in case he wanted to come in on a weekend and glance at the notes. He wanted it in the blood book. So yeah. just in case, so we had to write down every single patient's bloods every day in a blood book. This is book. so triggering case, right there. <laughs> in case he came in and just wanted to glance at the bloods and then they had to be a different color if they were abnormal or circled red and oh all the ones that were abnormal. Gosh. And then he also wanted it written on the, um, so on your ward round notes, like electronically. So he wanted it written on there in case he wanted to see um to prepare for the ward round and then no he could just see the 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 blood straight away like electronically so we had to write it down in three places and but he ex- had the expectation on us over the bank holiday if you're on call as well if you were his trainee you were his SHO then and you were on call you were expected mm. to do that yeah um, yeah bank holiday do you know what there was like, no give and take it was that yeah. was what had and to be done when I was like an SHO or an F1 like eight to nine years ago I would I would do that shit but like now I'm like just just try me like just try me I didn't <laughs> I, question it at any point I didn't I, know I, yeah. I could question it I don't yeah I don't think I have that kind of I don't have that in me to do <laughs> anymore so that's yeah I think being an SHO again is going to be very interesting um and I am not ready for it but let's move on <laughs> let's move on <laughs> let's <shall> move on <laughs> um because I don't know why normally I feel like this stuff comes around July time you know that whole hashtag tips for new docs or tips yeah. for new doctors it seemed to come around like really really Very early, early. what are we year. in April yeah April so this mm. is a tweet by Jack Barton his Twitter handle is at Jack Barton 07 and he put hashtag med Twitter I am amalgamating advice for new FY1s or slash twos on tips, tricks and advice on how to perform an effective medical take clerking. If you have any bugbears or key advice, please share. I'll put together as a document and it will be shared as part of an informal MTB lecture. I think um, I think Sean Monahan tweeted something similar as well. I think they were completely unrelated. Um, but yeah, his Twitter handle at Dr. Sean Moan, M-O-N, um, yeah, tweeted something again, I think asking for advice for FY1s and FY2s. And I think like, yeah, there were there were some like actually decent pieces of advice on there, which is fine, but that's not good content for the podcast. <laughs> no it's we want we want the nitty-gritty stuff we want yeah we want the annoying stuff but yeah there was and I don't think this was kind of related to that but there was a tweet by a nursing colleague wasn't there who was going on about her nursing intuition um right let's talk about let's talk about this tweet so this was a tweet by at nurse underscore charming and she wrote there is or no he better... wrote, I guess we don't or know. Or he wrote, sorry, yes. Yeah, they oh, wrote. From the picture. It we don't funny. know. Yeah. We don't know. Uh, there is no better feeling for me than developing my nursing intuition. While documenting, I realised our new uh, admit got to us at 8. At 8.13, I paged the doctor about his respiratory status because of his increased work of breathing. He was at 94% on two litres, so she didn't care. So I dropped it. All right, Queen. <laughs> okay. Mm, okay. Yeah, it's a bold statement, that, isn't it? Like, 
yeah, she, the, the doctor didn't care. And it's like, yeah, and you dropped it. Like, mm, that's, if, if you can't, you know, say or bring across a point to someone to, you know, to allow them to kind of reprioritize their list or their jobs list or whatever, that's not, that's not their fault. It was, yeah, yeah. And it's not, it's not, what I'm really reluctant or what I'm really cautious of is that is people accuse us of like nurse bashing. It's definitely not that. God, we're incredibly, incredibly grateful for our nursing and, and kind of other healthcare colleagues. It's just about, there's like this, and of course it's not all nurses, but it's just this like kind of small amount that seem to just think or act or have this chip on their shoulder where they're like, yeah, my intuition is spot on. I don't know what it is. Um, This person's sick. And no one's listening to me. And like, that's fine. But you need to kind of tell us a reason because I don't think people realize sometimes how other many responsibilities we have when we're like on call and stuff in a hospital. That's the thing. So I think that's the key thing. So there's two things for me here. One is, um, I think it's really important to acknowledge about intuition and how much we use that within medicine. Because that is something that we we, we should discuss. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. It's definitely a thing. Definitely a thing. I think the second thing is the jump from, you know, she had this, in, this she or he had this correct intuition that the patient was unwell and did the correct thing by contacting the doctor. But because the doctor didn't review the patient, the automatic assumption is that that doctor didn't care. Yeah. And for me, that is wrong on it's so rude. many levels. Yeah. Yeah, and I horrible. think as healthcare professionals, and this goes between primary and secondary care, juniors, seniors, mm. you know, allied healthcare professionals, because we have so much interaction and overlap, I think we think that we know the role that the other person plays. We know what their job is, mm. but actually we don't. So, you know, they contacted this doctor that, you know, that the stats were 94% on two litres. That doctor may have had five other patients whose sats were 93% on yeah, four litres. That's, that's not awful, you know, 94%, so, is it, on two litres? Exactly. It's... So unless you can... it, So there's no context here whatsoever. You have to, as a doctor, your your job is to prioritise your sickest yeah. patients. So yeah. your intuition is correct, but you have to... An intuition is actually the sum of your past experiences. Mm. And you have to be able to articulate that. Yeah. So yeah, what is it? Is to. it because the patient has actually been at 98% throughout the entire admission mm. and there's a sudden drop and you can't explain it? Or, you know, or is it, you know, this patient and it, they suddenly seem far from their baseline? Um, yeah. Yeah, you have what, to be able to explain that. That's part to... of your job, isn't it? Like yeah. that's part of being a good clinician or a good nurse or a good HCA is being able to actually explain or trying to explain what your rationale is. You might be wrong. God, there's loads of times I've been wrong. But it's like, I'm worried because, not that because, oh, this person's going down, I don't know why. And Coyote's response was was really good. I think he quote tweeted this original tweet. Um, and I won't read it all, but he said something like, the, the shade is subtle or thinly veiled, but it's very obvious to me. I'm very junior in my career, so I might be talking utter nonsense, but... Coyote, you're talking complete sense. Nothing what you say is nonsense. Complete sense. Um, but if I received this bleep, I'd be concerned, but not necessarily concerned immediately. Sat of 94% on two litres isn't great, but what's the patient's normal? Are they usually on O2, increased work of breathing, etc.? If your intuition is telling you something, you need to give me a reason to drop other urgent tasks I may be doing to come and see this patient. 
I despise threads like this because it perpetuates this idea that doctors simply don't care, which isn't fair. There are many hours between 8pm and 1am. What happened in that time? She didn't care is such an unnecessary targeted and a clumsy choice of words. Just because you can't physically see me doesn't mean I'm playing ping pong in the mess yeah. which is yeah it's and it's very presumptuous why would that be yeah. your automatic conclusion that the doctor doesn't care yeah. shouldn't your automatic conclusion be oh they have patients who are more sick than this yeah something's going on moment. yeah yeah um yeah it's not I don't know it's just every time this comes up I just feel completely deflated completely deflated but um yeah I quite like Therusha <laughs> Tarusha's response to this, who very, very openly said that he admitted that he trusts everyone's gut, gut, trust everyone's gut feelings, sorry, except for his own, <laughs> owing to bad IBS. <laughs> That's fair. And do you know what? I thought that was a massively underrated tweet and it only got 22 likes. I would have liked that a thousand times if I could. Do you know what? I like it now for you, Bethan. Oh, 23. Yeah. There 23 you go. likes. Sarusha man, get the IBS sorted. It's not. It's not good. It's not good. The things we can do if, now. Well, if it's things we can try. Your gut intuition, you know, that could be the key point in saving a patient's life. So sort your IBS out. I used to kind of get like the opposite sometimes, and I think Zach tweeted something along the same lines about he had a patient and that you know he was worried about them. Then went back to them and they were sitting up eating ice cream. But it used to happen to me quite a lot, a lot on neurosurgery where. A patient would like drop their GCS. I'd be on call and I'd be like, "Some something's something's wrong here. Like, I need to find out what it is." And I'd kind of get the outreach team involved and stuff. And then we'd end up organising like an urgent CT scan with a GCS of five. <laughs> by the time I we think transferred, that's a fair reason to have no, but by the time we by the wrong. time we transferred to CT, they'd be like GCS fifteen, hopping onto the scan bed, and it's like. Cool. My intuition was wrong. This is this is this is actually not a bad thing. I'm glad they're awake now. I think you've had some. You had someone with the GCS of five. I think you were perfectly. Yeah, but it, like neuro patients are weird, man. Neuro patients are weird. True. But you, we were talking earlier about. Um, you mentioned kind of in GP about yeah. kind of using your intuition and stuff. Yeah. Um, I hadn't actually realised how much I used my intuition until I had medical students sitting in with me and sometimes Mm. it's not even tangible you can't you can't explain it until you actually really think about until you actually think about it I guess it's like second nature to you now isn't it when you're this far into your career and stuff but it's like I said it's a sum of your past experiences so it's kind of it's it's almost pattern recognition Mm. that you're doing but yeah you rely on your intuition when someone walks into a room straight away because as a GP you need to like make a decision very rapidly about is this patient firstly well or unwell yeah you can tell that as soon as they walk in particularly with young children or older patients of making that decision quite quickly um even certain I think even just knowing your patients so you, you in GP you have a relationship with patients for quite a long time and you sometimes you see them when they're well um a lot of the time um so it's knowing actually they're far from their baseline something's not quite mm. right with them and it may not fit into your, your little tick criteria for your yeah. referrals but you can tell something's wrong with them um 
see I haven't articulated that very well at all my <laughs> no but that, like yeah that I guess that just proves our that point as well but it's point, but it's it? because you have but you do it's it's not just it's not just this like sixth sense that you have there's like a genuine reasoning to it isn't it but like you say it's your past experiences it's that continuity of care that shows you that you know, you don't know what it is yet, but something is very something different than is, previously. Something is wrong for this person. Yeah. Whereas that original tweet was kind of not alluding to any of that. It was just kind of saying like, doctors ignore us and yeah. we're always right and you should listen to us more and drop everything that you're doing. But it's just, yeah, very, very Hashtag different. Hashtag be kind, people. Oh, yeah. Hashtag, I was wondering how long it would take us to I get know. that in. Been how long. to get that in. Within the first <laughs> half an hour, we're doing well, Nina. We're doing Perfect. well. Perfect. But another very, very hot, hot, hot topic this week um, was... Hashtag be kind. <laughs> yes, hot. Oh, another interesting topic, I should say, was that of service provision. Mm. And there were so many opinions about that. About this one. Yeah. So the tweet we're talking about is Nick Schindler's tweet. And he put, I find it interesting that we use the term service provision to essentially mean all the bits of medicine that we would much rather someone else did. No one has ever described an intubation to me as service provision. Mm. That's nice, isn't it? Thing is, when we were discussing this tweet, we actually interpreted it in different ways. So Mm. I I think... I don't know if this is my pessimistic, cynical personality, but I interpreted that as a bit of shade. Um... And I'm struggling to kind of say exactly why, but I don't know. It, I think it was the fact that it was like quite the fact that service provision was like in sixty six ninety nines, and um, and that it was a bit like yeah, the bits of medicine that we kind of insinuating that we just don't want to do them. And I think there is something to that, but I think it just felt like it was negating the argument of what a lot of us as trainees I think feel service provision is and how that takes away from training and how that can implicate you know on your ARCB your progression because you might get pulled into doing things that we might call service provision that are obviously important and we're not saying that we're above any of this but at the expense of training it then becomes problematic whereas I think you initially interpreted it as like more positive wasn't it yeah so initially I interpreted it as I didn't actually read the tweet in a lot of detail but I initially interpreted it as something quite positive. Um, mm. And if I can link it to another tweet, which is just how I interpreted this one, this is um, Dr. Yvette Doc's tweet. And she put time wasted as a GP that can be delegated. Um, DWP slash DVLA forms, re-referrals, completing insurance forms, letters for expediting appointments or for school and uni. So I interpreted the tweet as initially actually kind of using our resources effectively like should we be doing like service provision should we be allocating those jobs to someone else so that we can free up just make you know when you have a team and you try and see (coughs) the benefits one of the key things about team working is identifying people's strengths and weaknesses and making sure you're allocating the right tasks to the right people yeah but the one thing I think with with this tweet that I found a little bit difficult was his line about um, the bits of medicine that we would much rather someone else did because that's the way that's worded makes it sound like what I didn't like Mm. we're above it we're above those jobs and it's Uh, that's what yeah 
that's that's, that's the bit my, of the tweet that I didn't I didn't like. Yeah, in my opinion, that's what it felt was being somewhat insinuated and got up. You know, I'm more than likely to be wrong. I often am, but I think that's no, just not. how it felt. And and I think looking from a lot of the responses, a lot of other kind of trainees felt the same. And it's again, it's not that we are above this, but you know, we might have had. 10 years post-grad training why are we still being used to do some stuff that maybe your more junior colleagues should be doing when you know you could be doing something else that's more effective with your time and it's not that you refuse to do these things it's the fact that it's like you say it's just that that prioritization of people's time and people's skill sets but I think a big part of it for me is just that insinuation that people don't just don't want to do it. Like it's like, yeah. like I say it's below them, but it's a huge implication for things like training and stuff. And it made me think of, so before I was a neurosurgery trainee, I worked um, as like a trust grade SHO, like locum in a neurosurgery. It was my last F2 rotation. And so I just stayed there to locum. I didn't know what I wanted to do at that point. Um, and yeah, it was just like a nice, easy job for me where I knew everyone already and didn't have to kind of rotate. When I eventually decided in, in that time that I wanted to do neurosurgery and got my number and then started training in the same department, it was very difficult for people to see me as like not the local message show anymore, but now as a trainee that needed to get operative numbers, needed to get certain things ticked off where I didn't have to worry about any of that before. So in a way, I was like always the yes man. I was getting taken advantage of. I would always get, you know, everyone would always ask me to do certain jobs. And I did it. And then it ended up that I got pulled back at ARCP and didn't go mm. th- didn't go through first time because I didn't get my operative numbers and I didn't get all my work-based assessments done because I was doing what we might class as more service provision yeah. jobs at the expense of your training. And again, it's not that I would ever think I'm above that. It's just that when you're a trainee, you have to be trained as well. Like that's that's the contract, isn't it? I think nobody disputes that you you're working. You're going to have to do an element of service provision. I think yeah, no one disputes course. that. That's the, the problem job. Yeah, is, the job is you're not. We're not getting the balance right. Mm. We're not. We're not getting. So it's people are. If it's getting to the point where people are having to sacrifice training yeah. for the service provision, and the training is suffering because of that. That yeah. is the issue. And Absolutely. At the moment with the NHS being so understaffed, mm. if you're having to do the job of two doctors, you're doing your service provision part, their service provision mm. part. So it's going to have a massive impact on training and that's your yeah. future career. And well, that's it because we'll then set. be expected to be the registrars, the consultants, that the GPs the in years to come. Yeah. But we're not going to be as prepared as potentially... Like you could be, isn't it? And I think, excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat, but um, just expecting having, you expect seniors to have some awareness of that, I think. And um, yeah, it's just kind of a bit deflating when it's potentially insinuated that, well, we just don't want to do it. And it's, it's, it's not that like, yeah, don't get me wrong. Sometimes you don't want to fill in a DVLA form or whatever, but you do it because you know that you should and it's, you know, professional to do so. But it's not, it's not, it just doesn't boil down to, yeah, I don't want to do that today. It's it's never that simple. And to make it sound that simple, just got a little bee in my bonnet about it. Buzz, buzz. Have you ever been given a job that you thought this is entirely not my job to do? 
Yeah, uh, yeah, pro- probably. I think like, oh yeah, like the main one used to be for me in new research he was doing kind of all the the dolls assessments like the deprivation of liberty assessments and capacity assessments and things and it used to be like this unwritten rule that only doctors could do them whereas it was not doctors that were trained on this it was like the other maybe nursing and allied healthcare staff so I used to just get my bean up on it about that as well because I was like I just don't know what I'm doing here and this legal paperwork but suddenly it's like because we're rotating through and you're permanent staff it's very easy just to dump all that stuff on mm. on the ward doctors so stuff like that used to really annoy me because I never felt like I was trained for it but there's just this like thing isn't it that if you're the doctor or the junior doctor you can do it it's your job you yeah. do everything yeah what about yourself yeah I've had one <laughs> oh go on please tell so um yeah this is this was last year <laughs> this was last year I was on call I had a really crappy day so it's like eight o'clock in the evening and the cleaners had come in and then I, one of the cleaners is in the waiting room all our doors were open and then she just shouts out oh, Dr. Jar, Dr. Jar, come here quick. And I'm like, oh, crap. Like, someone's just walked into the surgery and that, like, collapsed. Yeah, passed out. I, like, like, ran out my room. I'm like, oh, my God, what's going on? What's going on? She goes, look, there's an ant's nest. I'm like, <laughs> what? right? I'm yeah. like, um, shut are you just telling me because you want me to look at the ants? Like, are they doing something cool? Like, I don't know, are they in yeah, a line? Yeah, shimmying oh, sugar cubes along or something. And then she goes, are you going to sort it out? I'm like, oh, I don't know. Mm. I thought, I, I kind of looked at her and said, are, are you, are you going to sort it out? <laughs> and she goes, but there, it's on the resus trolley. So because it's over the medical equipment, so should it come under the doctor's job? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't think so I think you're probably more skilled in taking out the ant's nest than 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 I am oh and she goes but I'm gosh. not skilled in dealing with resus equipment I, said, <laughs> I know but, but I, what you're not asking <laughs> them to defibrillate the ants or well I so, hope um, not we did it together in the end because it was quicker to, no yeah just no it's just quicker to do that it's that classic it's isn't like it? a... it's like that classic thing isn't it of um of like oh there's a, the, the calling the med reg when there's like a pigeon on the ward um yeah, I, I remember being called once so I was it, it, I was on a night shift at the new resurgery reg on call I totally forgot about this until this exact moment um and I remember getting a bleep from the site manager and I was in theater and I was like I can't take it right now you have to take pass on a message and the the bleep was to tell me that um some robbers had just crashed into the front of the hospital with a jeep um, Are you joking? No, no, deadly serious. They tried to steal our cash machine that was outside the front door. So they wrapped, they wrapped like this, like belt around it, and then tried to drive off, and it snapped. And obviously they escaped, but all the front of the hospital was smashed in. What did they want you to do? I know, and I was just like, "Oh right." But is that even just security? Why? I'm why just gonna, yeah, you? I'm just gonna carry on operating now. If if that's okay with, <laughs> with you, like that's really cool. Thanks for that. Um, oh. Yeah, so I was just like, yeah, maybe I'm probably not the first port of call to answer. Maybe like all the managers on call is probably your best bet. I'm just going to do me little burr hole now, if that's okay. Oh, that is hilarious. I, to- I totally forgot. About- I think I'd probably block that out of my mind. Don't really want to be reminded <laughs> of, of that one. Yeah, interesting. That's yeah, that's uh, interesting. Um, one of the most interesting night shifts I'd had, actually. But uh, yeah, tech priest was quite triggering he mentioned do you remember that um 
72 hour rule for cannulas where if a cannula got to 72 hours it had to be changed and people would just take them out before even kind of considering it used to drive me insane it was always like the most difficult patients yeah yeah so I don't really know why I'm mentioning that. I think because that was brought up and I was triggered, I just wanted to trigger no, everyone it's true. else. Especially when you well. get to take it out and it's like a blue and a little toe and you're like, oh, oh where no. am I going to find something to put this in now? Yeah, really, really frustrating. One of those things, isn't it, that's just you're told to do and I'm not even sure there's that much evidence for it, but yeah, I'm sure somebody will explain. But to you us, can't but... question the protocol if it's that's in the it, protocol, see, then you've just put your common it's sense the law, to one it? side. That's the law. It's the you law. just follow the book, don't mm. question it, you just do mm. what it says. The law, the um, law. and yeah, I thought Dr. Joseph Hartland made a good point as well. Um, they tweeted fascinates me to see consultants and seniors saying I thought it would have improved since my day no it's significantly worse surely that's obvious that level of ignorance is surely willful um and we had a bit of a discussion about this didn't we we did because I actually put my hands up to this I'll be honest um because (laughs) no it's true it's true I'm, I'm gonna be honest because like the last six months I've been locuming and the practice that I'm working in is is a non-training practice. So I don't get trainees coming in. I don't mm. get students coming in. And then my shifts in urgent treatment centre or A&E, we don't actually have, well, the bit where I'm in, I don't really have any students or interactions with trainees in the, in the GP bit. So um, I really wouldn't know what it's like for students and junior doctors. And that's one of the reasons that, I love Twitter because if it wasn't for that, I really wouldn't know what how bad it is at the yeah. moment for junior doctors. I really wouldn't. I'd but you engage with that, and that's I think you know obviously that's like a really positive thing, isn't it? I think it's it's some seniors that completely kind of shut their eyes to it all and make no attempt or you know to even read what kind of what's going on. I think that's what's just quite demoralizing sometimes, and it's. Yeah, I think sometimes I wonder like what happens once you've once you've got like your CCT because it's like I've worked with consultants in hospitals who would not believe what it was like and they were working with trainees kind of every day, you know, you do in any hospital and it's like, you know, are you so scarred that you kind of get to CCT and you just want to forget about all that stuff, which I can understand. But I think to acknowledge how crap it is, is extremely validating for us that are still yeah. kind of trainees and things. And um, and I think it means a lot more than what people would imagine. It's that solidarity, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think especially from a senior. Mm, yeah. It makes it makes a big difference. Absolutely. Um, was there much solidarity with GPs this week? Or were you still GP bashing as per? Well, the thing is... As people know, we've got loads of free time in GPs. We sit around mm. not doing very much. And supposedly we should be helping doing uh, doing ward rounds in hospitals. In our spare time. In our spare I, time. It's obvious, obviously copious, copious amounts of it. Uh, so, yeah. So this was, I haven't actually read the article in detail. Have you read it? The Pulse article yeah. about GPs um, giving up their spare time to mm. <laughs> review discharges. Essentially, yeah. Essentially, hospital. that's what they wanted. It was to GPs to join ward rounds again, I'll say, in their spare time. Um, 
and it it's specifically in the article I think it was in Nottingham this was happening and it, it was specifically to identify patients that could be discharged at this struggling hospital but that's not what the problem is is it like no I there's think plenty of people to discharge people to say they are medically fit or medically optimized it's the destination it's so frustrating how the points can be missed the Constantly. point isn't oh mm who is fit for discharge it's where is everyone gonna freaking go? go i know we know they're fit for discharge where exactly. are they gonna freaking go yeah we like, can at least get them to a point where they are fit for discharge exactly. it's everything after that Absolutely. if you erode social care entirely and there's no space in the care mm. homes and there's there's no where are they going to go so and fix that issue and please leave us leave us alone <laughs> please we- Next, we'll be opening our houses into like these mini residential homes and like bringing home patients and stuff. The GPs oh must nominate a patient every day to bring back to oh, their house. We could like foster them, yeah. Oh, oh I <laughs> just like oh god, that. I dread to think we're. Oh my gosh, no, I dread to think the poor souls, the poor souls. Oh gosh, trying to be at home with my two monsters, my two kids. Can you imagine? <laughs> that'd, be a, that'd be a good recovery, good rehab. That would be very good rehab. I wouldn't mind checking into that one. Um, oh, come, come stay with me. Oh, yeah, and then we'll all fly together on a plane. That would be lovely. It'd be fun. We'll all clap when it lands. I'm <laughs> <laughs> really messing. You'd have but, to um, clap with me. You know I'd make you do that. Yeah, I would be, I'd be drugged enough to just go along with, with whatever. With whatever I Absolutely. say. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's this whole thing again, isn't it, that we're working part-time and, oh, God, it just, yeah, really pees me off. I think the and, problem with part-time work is it's how it, when you talk about GPs working part-time, you look at their how many sessions they're doing. And a session is classed mm. as like four hours or four hours, four hours and 10 minutes. So if someone's working like two sessions a day, it's, it's technically on paper, it's eight <laughs> hours and 20 minutes. Sounds like the best joke I've ever heard, yeah. <laughs> but if, if that's not the reality of the hours. Of course it's not. Of and we're not talking about the odd time when there's a patient who's sick or there's someone who's off sick and then, you know, you're taking on a bit of work on that mm. day. We're talking about something that's consistent, that's regular, that's it, it's now so, so mm. normal. It, it's the norm. It's the norm yeah. now. It's so frequent to become the norm. So you're looking at, you know, if you're doing an eight hour day, it, there's no such thing as an eight hour day in GP. Of course there's not, of course. Um, so it ends up being a 12 hour, 14 hour day, but those hours aren't, aren't counted. So yeah. firstly, part-time work is actually full-time work in hours. And secondly, I don't think it's anyone's beeswax. If of course it's time. not. Of Which course. other job do people get like hounded if they're working part time? I'm an adult. I'm a grown yeah. person. It's not. I'm not a child. You're not. I. You know. You can't yeah. tell me what to do with my work life balance. Exactly. People have to work part time for lots of different reasons. That is no one's beeswax. Mm. Like just. Dr. Steve Taylor, yeah, made that exact point and said that, you know, a GP working three days in clinic, so effectively six sessions, will actually end up working more like 40 hours. That's three days, which is essentially a full-time job. Um, And there was this absolute cretin that I I can't remember who it was, but someone who I think classes themselves as a doctor on Twitter. Um, And I'm a less than full-time trainee. I do 80%. Um, And he made some comment about something and said that um, the NHS would run smoother if all these lazy less than full-time trainees would pull their weight. I just blocked that person. Oh, oh God, I I just want to say some really naughty words. but I do as well. When we leave this 
we'll just trick. have like a little 10 minutes of like yeah, effing like and blinding yeah. just yes, to get all yes. the frustration out. We'll try and out. be as good as we can whilst we're recording. Yes, we will. Um, but Pop yeah, Mark, halo on. Yeah, back to being it all angel-like. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Mark Steggles, again, another great tweet. Uh, he said, blaming GPs for difficulties accessing them, saying they're lazy, overpaid, closed, hiding... They're to blame for long A&E waits and saying they should do more, funnily enough, makes the problem worse. It makes them leave. Yeah. Now, this isn't just theoretical. This is a a huger issue than we give it credit for. And I think because it's so repetitive and it's said on loop that people become numb to it. Mm. But actually, it's a real problem. And there was um, a survey recently done by MDDUS And they found that three in four GPs have faced rising abuse or aggression from patients over the past year. And as a consequence of that, half plan to retire early or quit the profession completely. Wow. Now, this is a huge, this is going to have massive implications for the coming coming years. Um, But I'm not really seeing any leadership that are significant that are actually addressing this issue seriously no one cares no, no one, cares. one cares they are out to destroy us i'm as, as with many other people i'm convinced it's just all about taking it down it's yeah it's oh, depressing. i don't know what to say about it you know, you know i tweet about that this mm. issue loads and i've just kind of it's exhausting because even if you try and raise is. the issue, you tr- you try and say in, in a neutral way, even in a factual way with that emotion, the amount of trolling and abuse mm. that you get. And that's from the public. Say it. <laughs> We've got no hope, Nina. Public. We've got no from hope. From colleagues as well. Mm. Yeah, from secondary um, care colleagues, from, hospital colleagues. And actually mm. you get to a point where you can't even talk about it anymore because it's not worth the... No. All the backlash. So yeah, I feel like all of it's all very reliant on individual GPs, um, like Sal, Salva, Simon, Shan. Like you know, we're all like trying to like address these issues Mm. from on an individual basis. But you actually need someone like someone like the Royal College, maybe, or yeah, (laughs) someone who we're paying loads of money to to actually bloody stand up for us. Stand up for us. It shouldn't be the job of individual GPs. It should be the the leaders that are are taking a stand on this. But they're just not at all, and it's incredibly frustrating. And pissed. I'm pissed off actually. Yeah, that's an understatement. (laughs) That's an understatement. Um, But talking about RCGP, we know we like the parody RCGP account, Um, and they they tweeted a good response and said, you know, if you can't get a ticket to see Ed Sheeran, do you think he's actually just sitting in an empty stadium playing with Lego? You know, if you're sitting waiting to see a doctor in A&E, do you assume that they're playing poker rather than seeing patients? And people don't, do they? So why is it like this with GPs? I but I wouldn't, because... I wouldn't mind a game of Snap, block out a clinic <laughs> slot, little game of Snap. Little, little Again, game it's of because it's hidden. It's because it's not seen. So when I'm in mm. A&E and patients are waiting for hours to get seen, and you, like I always say, well, you know, I'm sorry for the wait or thank you for waiting. They'll always say, or almost always, um, oh, yeah. that's okay. I can I can see how busy you are. And that's the yeah. key thing. I can see how can busy see. you are. Yeah. Whereas in GP, when you have to wait like weeks for an appointment, 
you're mm. the person to blame. It, or if they can't even get through on the phone, like oh, I waited 45 minutes to get through on the phone. I'm like, well, why do you think that's the case? Yeah, We haven't just put you on hold for 45 <laughs> minutes. The reason Please it's snap. taking so long is because we've got so many patients who are yeah. calling. The reason you can't get an appointment for four weeks is because there are so many patients trying to get yeah. an appointment. Um, but because it's hidden, people can't see yeah. it and uh, have, you know, mm. used that very yeah. <laughs> to push their own agenda. Um, mm. people believe it. If you say a lie enough times, it becomes the truth. And yeah, and people believe what they want to believe. They want to believe yeah. all this drama and this conspiracy. Well, they need someone to blame. And yeah, of course they do. Blame. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. Um, but going from one really light-hearted topic to another, uh, doctor's pay came up again mm. this week, didn't it? It did indeed. And yeah, I think it's like that, like the hashtag tips for new docs, something that you can rely on cropping up in a in a repeated cycle is this comparison of junior doctor's pay to physician assistant's pay. Um, and I guess it's not for us to get into the exact nitty gritty of this. It's not the point of this podcast and, you know, it's don't, yeah, it's, it's not for us to do that. Um, and, and, but I think it's safe to say that when this argument is used, it's not that people are asking for PAs to be paid less or for nurses to be paid less. It's more that we're asking for junior doctors to be paid a fair pay. And I think that the tweet that garnered a lot of attention this past week was, you know, you know I think it was FY doctor's basic salary is £10,000 per annum lower than the starting salary for a physician assistant and that the basic salaries only align once a doctor reaches CT1 level. So you can see why people get upset about that then, can't you? Because you you finish uni after you know six years, and you're the most junior person in the hospital, but have a heck of a lot of responsibility. So you can see why people get thing. upset. It's, I don't see why we can't just pay people for the job they're doing at the moment. And I hate mm. this argument that you we can get away with paying you a lower wage because that's what it is it's about getting away with it yeah of course it is we can get away with it because in 10 years time when you've passed this many exams or jumped through this many hoops then Mm. you will get the pay you will get an increase in your pay or the pay you deserve in that many years time yeah um and why can't we just pay people and honestly Bevan like I say we've how many times we've probably talked about this almost every time we've done a podcast probably yeah Um, yeah and I remember, I remember my trainer telling me when I was uh, my GP trainer telling me, if a patient keeps repeating themselves in a consultation, mm. or they keep coming back on repeated consultations and repeating what they're saying, it's because they feel they're not being heard, yeah. or they are not being heard. And yeah. it's the same issue here. The reason we're talking about it is because it's people keep we're trying to raise the issue. We're all trying to raise the issue. Mm. Nothing is happening. Nothing yeah. is changing. Um, but also nothing is happening because there are people within our profession that are actively opposing pay okay. uplifts. And we'll talk a bit more about the BMA junior doctors um, motion about pay in a, in a quick second. But there are people, yeah, people who oppose these motions. And how can you negotiate effectively when your profession is divided? Like you can't, can you? Because there's always going to be someone... Well, not more. Well, more than a few people disagreeing, essentially, which are the people are probably quite comfy, quite well off for money, and probably never had to 
to struggle for it if I may make that assumption I make that assumption it's all about number one isn't it if you're sorted then why would you fight for someone else um and it's just like that attitude yeah it's it's yeah it's really horrible it's really kind of again condescending to people's experiences that are maybe more junior more kind of not as well off come from poorer backgrounds who are, you know it's it's tough enough for those people anyway isn't it within medicine um but when we're not on the, all on the same page for stuff like this it's just yeah it's it's really weird and ivy's tweet went viral this week and i don't know how anyone within or without our profession can disagree with this but ivy tweeted and she said i get paid 15 pound 70 an hour i think I think Ivy's uh, F2. Um, I'm expected to lead the cardiac arrest team for my clinical area. My current monthly taxable pay is less than that of an SHO 20 years ago. Considering level of responsibility that is required of me, I think I deserve more than £15.70 an hour. Of course that's, she does. That's the key thing, isn't it? The level of responsibility that is required of me. So you're the, that mm. risk that you're carrying every day, that is worthy being paid adequately for yeah, doing your job of course job. it is of course it is like you say no matter what you're pre- expected to earn in 10 15 20 years time yeah. get paid for what you're doing, doing now. now and I think then a lot of the kind of commotion in the last few days as well as come from this um BMA junior doctors motion and again I I have to admit I don't know the exact details and it's not for us again to try and kind of pick those out right now on this podcast but essentially the motion is asking for a 15% pay uplift, whilst also acknowledging and admitting at the same time that since 2008 and 2009, real terms take-home pay for a junior doctor is actually down 22.4%. So even by asking for a 15% uplift, you're still not in line with... Well, what you're asking for actually is less of a pay cut. Yeah, <laughs> we'll still take a pay cut, but just... A little bit. That's what you're asking for. The uplift is actually not. You're just asking for less of a pay cut. Mm. Um, So again, it's understandable why people are upset. And I've I've seen a lot of tweets from um, Emma Runswick, who does great work in in general and within the BMA, but also kind of explaining how this has come about. And I think it was kind of voted on over a year ago, where maybe 15% was then maybe more in line with what. Um, our pay erosion was at that time but things have changed now and it you know it's not it's not enough um and it's not kind of straightforward it's not black and white but again whilst our profession is divided and we are arguing over stuff like this nothing's going to happen is it nothing's going to happen and all of this talk about widening participation and encouraging people Mm. from different backgrounds to join I mean fine you get people through university into university and then what unless you address these issues you're not widening participation at all you're keeping medicine for the elite and the privileged and for those whose parents can you know fund them throughout yeah exactly bank of mum and dad until you actually address um the career throughout training and medical school you're you're not widening participation at all it's just words um yeah and ben ivory uh whose twitter handle at benno ivory made a good point and he said I truly believe that my generation is the last for whom medicine is a financially worthwhile career the effort to reward ratio simply doesn't stack up anymore medicine risks becoming the domain only of those parents only of those whose parents sorry can afford to bankroll their training which basically yeah yeah, it's essentially what we said yeah 
Yeah. And I know we've discussed on previous podcasts about kind of whether you would like recommend the career to younger people and students and stuff. But when yeah, when I was thinking about doing medicine, I generally didn't know any of this shit. And I didn't understand that I'd be getting credit cards out to pay for exams. I'd be putting myself in debt. I remember and just, at school, they yeah. actually sold it as the career that you'll have financial stability. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I thought. Yeah, that and was definitely one of the reasons why I went into it. Was, I come from a background where, you know, growing up, I, I didn't have that financial stability. Same, yeah, same. And so it was really that part of choosing that career was really mm. reassuring, actually. I said, once you become a doctor, you won't struggle. Yeah, you'd be comfortable. Um, yeah. Exactly. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's not I don't know, it's, it's like it's you say, it's not true widening participation really, is it? Not and aside from constant pay erosion, there are, of course, you know, other difficulties affecting incoming FY1s. And I think it's really important for us to be aware to of acknowledge this. that. So yeah. particularly the people who have um, been in their final year or foundation years during the pandemic. So this was a tweet by um, Laura, whose Twitter handle is at Duck. Dr. Underscore Laura W. And she put, um, as one of the final year medical students starting F1 this year, I thought it might be good to clarify some things about our our cohort. Those graduating this year have had three years of COVID disrupting our learning. I'm so excited to start work, but I'm going in with my eyes open. And I'd really recommend um, having a look at this thread because I think she really breaks down um really well yeah. about all the different aspects that yeah, the so pandemic has impacted in her in her training absolutely yes she's talked about how there was like so much uncertainty whilst they were in medical school you know they were p- still paying nine thousand pound a year for this not knowing you know everything stopped for a bit and not knowing how it would continue um everything's up in the air like clinics teaching ward rounds it keeps getting cancelled and changed more now um you know there's really mixed quality of online teaching which we hear quite a lot as well um and so for those coming into fy1 now they've had an incredibly different experience to what we would have had in in training yeah and you know i think Laura said she feels prepared, but then there's other incoming FY1s and, and Bella Roschetti has, has, has tweeted as well and said, you know, I don't actually feel prepared. And again, you can totally understand that. And her point went on to say that I think, yeah, we need to acknowledge it rather than the tendency being like it normally is to reassure people, tell them it's going to be okay, because yeah, it probably will be, but that's not going to help now and it's that toxic positivity that forced positivity thing again isn't it I think it in a way it it shuts people down like it silences Mm. people if you're saying that it's going to be okay it's it's almost like you can you don't need to keep talking about your concerns and your worries because it's going to be okay and I'm sure some people do it because they truly believe it's going to be okay and they try to be reassuring and well-meaning I also think some people do it because they can't really handle the discomfort oh, of yeah, talking yeah. about the issue yeah. so it's, it's about easier them, to just say yeah. I don't know if it's going to be okay it's going to be okay yeah um and it's a false reassurance rather than yeah. a genuine one but even in the even with genuine reassurance it's still I think sometimes it doesn't land right when that person has gone through an incredibly tough time like in this situation for example it's, re- it's reassuring you just want that validation don't you yeah you want you want you the validation re- of like yeah. this this is crap like you know it shouldn't have been like this for you I'm so sorry what do you need just let us know how can we help yeah Yeah. exactly 
Um, and another another problem that's blighted um, a current FY1 this week was the plight of female doctors not being recognised as <laughs> such. That's right, which, so this yeah, was, drew a lot of uh, uh, a lot of responses. It was more the re- the, the responses to this mm. were absolutely. I really felt the original tweet, though. I really did feel the original tweet. I've all had it, it, haven't we? The original tweet is something we can all relate to. Um, So this was a tweet by um, Pariza Hussain. I'm sorry if I've said your your name incorrectly. Um, And she put, hashtag med Twitter, need some advice. I've been working as an F1 for almost nine months. And so many patients, relatives and staff think that I'm a nurse um, slash HCA in hospital due to my gender and height. I always have to correct them. I wear scrubs and a stethoscope. What more can I do? And later on, she writes about how she wears like this big lanyard saying doctor <laughs> yeah. and a bad thing. Doctor, like yeah. she, she couldn't do anything more to show that she is in fact a doctor. A um, doctor, yeah. So I don't think, I think the surprising thing about this, well, unsurprising thing about this mm. thread was some of the absolutely <laughs> awful responses yeah. to it all from a certain phenotype <laughs> white men white oh, men thank god a man came to share their manly views because where would we be views. without them oh my but, god uh, yeah there was so. one character who i don't know i can't even be bothered to name them but um he uh, said prof david evans obe i'm gonna name him because oh, I'm I, was, really I was actually gonna go with the other the other oh the other um, one. Oh, we've the other got two one. we have yeah, two villains oh, today yeah but uh, the the first one who's saying like oh no offense which is uh, too late offense already taken um but i had to look up what an f1 was patients really know or care what someone's title is just whether you do a good job or not maybe the need for status is your issue oh fuck off as a patient the need for good kind care is mine so this guy is a retired healthcare worker thank goodness for that um but like oh, how can they not appreciate that there is this need for people to be known as their Roles, I'm like... going to talk about I'm going to mention this shitty response too because then we can just talk about both of them at the yeah, same time we, yeah we can just lament this men. is why professor David Evans OBE that's his yeah title all his titles in Twitter. there yeah absolutely. and he wrote feel honored <laughs> no feel honored they think you might be a nurse or a HCA because they are great members of the multidisciplinary team too then when you do some of the doctor magic stuff they'll realize they got it wrong and you smile and say no offense it's happened before <laughs> laughing emoji face how condescending i've is never that read a more so patronizing oh. response in every single sentence it was good to see so many people calling them out, but why do people have these views in the first place? They are so far removed from their from mm-hmm. their, their sexism yeah. is so ingrained. Yeah, it's so ingrained <laughs> that they genuinely can't see it. No, and they think you should be thankful. I know. But, I mean, uh, yeah, it's and it's it's where not to the way. Start. It's not that we're offended, is it? We're not offended by being called a nurse or a HCA. It's that's that itself is not offending. I think that's what people are getting wrong because that's another avenue of attack, wasn't it? Like, why is it so bad to be called a nurse? It's it's not that. It's, it's not, not that. that at and all. ICM wrote this. There's a Twitter. A, the Twitter handle is at ICM underscore JD, and they summarise this perfectly. I really like their response. And they put, it's like staff calling you by the wrong name constantly, even though it's clearly written on the badge. 
female doctors shouldn't be constantly assumed to be a nurse. It's deeply rooted sexism. Patients need to know exactly who a doctor and a nurse is to avoid complaints and confusion. And it's not about being mistaken for a nurse. That's not the issue. Mm, It's about that it's the assumption that you can't you can't be a doctor because you're a woman or a woman of colour. Absolutely. It's that. Absolutely. And we've all had those complaints as well, haven't we, where patients swear blind they've not been seen by a doctor for days. But lo and behold, the doctor, who's a female, have been seeing them on the ward round every single bloody day. But no, because it's a female, oh, no, I haven't been seen by the doctor. These people even complain to pals. You then have a pals complaint to deal with. It's just like, and how can it even get that far when your name is in the notes every day reviewing a patient? Exactly. It's, it's huge implications to this. It's it's, it it's not just all about the way up from yeah. junior to senior. If you're a woman and you're in healthcare, I can guarantee yeah. you you'd have this would have happened to you. If I'm yeah. in A and E with a male nurse, um the patients will They'll talk, talk to, them, to the won't male they? nurse. Yeah. And even though I'm yeah. the one that's asking questions, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm the doctor. Actually doing shit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um when I um when I was my first F one job was on like a ventilation weaning like a respiratory HDU type ward and there was it was actually she was a she was a female patient as well and it it just reminds me of that time because so I was doing her blood gases every day I was on the ward round every day and weeks into the admission she went to one of the sisters and said why are you letting the receptionist do all these blood tests on me. <gasps> oh, and then, so I, I asked her about it and I said, you know, I've, 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 I've introduced myself many times as a doctor and she was just, oh, no, no, I just thought that you were the receptionist and they were letting you have a go. She was completely compassmental. <laughs> it's all these subconscious biases that we're yeah. fed throughout, you know, our childhood even. If you look at TV oh God, programs, yeah. movies, it's all like male doctors. It's, mm. So it's, yeah. it's like drip thread throughout. Twitter gonna Twitter though, hey? Oh, Twitter always. gonna Twitter always um and i wanted to move on next to this post about promoting your specialty to your juniors but i think after what we've discussed so far (laughs) it's incredibly difficult to promote any of this to junior colleagues oh my god get out get out while you can get out save yourselves yeah save (laughs) yourselves um but yeah rosie barua was referring to an item in the bmj about how should one promote their specialty to their juniors and yeah I don't know anymore after everything we've discussed no no, she put um in ICM it's all too often gender specific women by default get the you'll need to think about how you'll balance it with family life even though their dependents may not even exist yet um and or they have no desire to reproduce I mean did you I mean I I definitely got that yeah I definitely got that yeah was very similar so in in neurosurgery when I got my training number some of the um more senior male trainees would actually try and tell me horror stories and this was vile they used to point out the more senior female trainees that we had at the time and they'd be like look at her she's not you know she still hasn't cct'd you don't want that you don't want to be her um the reason why she's like this is because she's had a child and I was just like what and then another registrar came to me once I got my ST1 number and said, you know, before you get to ST3, you need to go off. You need to have all your children. And I was like, mate, like, 
I'm single and how do you even know that's my plan? He was like, that's, you know, it's it's going to hinder you. If you're going to have children after ST3, why bother? And I just thought, like, how far removed is this shit? I just remember because I, I was, I really struggled picking a specialty because I, my heart was in peds. I always wanted to do peds. And then it was mm. just... Sometimes it can be one person who says something that <laughs> puts you off. Yeah. And it was this male registrar who came up to me and he said, um, I think he, they'd had a really hard time with with, with their rotors. And um, he goes, our consultant is, you know, it has to stay on site now. We're going to have to, they were moving to the consultants being resident on call as well. And mm. he goes, you've just got to think about this. He goes, because how would you feel as a mother leaving your children behind? To, to yeah. And actually I'd never thought about it that way before mm. and it did affect me because I, I I didn't know if I wanted to make that if I could cope with with, yeah. with making that sacrifice and he was he was not he was genuinely trying to do it in a way that was he kept saying I'm, I'm, I don't need to make a mistake like I don't I want you to do something that you're going to mm. be happy with but That's weird you know mm imagine leaving your kids behind would you what if you can say you were going to do that and I'm like I can't it's I don't not, know it's I not his place to can... even suggest that though is it like yeah I actually had two mm. male registrars say that to me wow. um they can jog on yeah the thing is I don't I, I wasn't I didn't have twitter like I didn't really have that that advice that di- you yeah. get actually meant so a different. lot because sometimes that's the only advice you you didn't really yeah. know who to turn to to get advice of course from. no I don't think I would still know now, really. Like, I feel like there's I'd people I Exactly, but without that, I wouldn't know. Like, I don't have any role models in my, like, local area or my local profession that I would see as, like, a mentorship-type role. I think it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. And then there's always, like, every man for himself kind of thing, isn't it? And I just think it's so hard to, to find those people now. Same. Um, but, yeah, I don't know about you, Nina, but my well-being and morale is pretty much in the gutter right now <laughs> and there was actually quite um a good tweet from us med twitter this week um and it said calling all med twitter residents what are some initiatives and or events that your program sponsors that actually increases your wellness i would love to hear about successful ideas and i think this just really caught my eye because in the NHS, it's very, very different. Like, what do we get? Mandatory. It's quite eye-opening, actually, reading some of the lectures. responses on yeah. now, wasn't it? Yeah. So we are very far removed from... Yeah. So there was there was one reply talking about a... Um, hosp- well, there was actually a few replies talking about a hospital concierge service. Um, I don't know how those words even go together in the same <laughs> sentence. <laughs> hospital and concierge. Um, but yeah, so they, they were talking about things like they had this concierge team. I keep saying concierge, concierge. I don't know which one it is. Concierge. Anyway, you get the picture. Um, we, and get ya. we get you. We get you. We get you. And it was like, yeah, so they were email. So they, sorry, they were mailing packages for them. They would go to like the post office for them. They were doing their bloody dry cleaning. Oh. Essentially like a personal assistant. I like, want what that. the heck? I want one of those. Yeah, that would just be good for life in general, <laughs> wouldn't it? Oh, so I um I once asked a ward clerk if I could borrow her computer to like print something. Like I didn't even ask them to do it. I wanted to do it myself, but I just wanted to borrow the computer. And they looked at me as if I just like shat on their head. Really? <laughs> it's just like, and then I think across the world, there's there's these people doing all these jobs, and I just wanted to borrow a computer. <laughs> very very different talking about across the world let's move on to something non-medical now shall we mm, so i really joy. liked tech priest's tweet he put 
Is it weird to miss a city you never called home? To feel affinity for a place you are only a traveller passing through to? Um, and so for him, it was Berlin, and he explained why. But what, do you do you have a... I'd never really thought about that before until you've written it oh, down. Yeah, this 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 tweet, like, made me daydream Same. and think oh, a lot. Yeah, I loved it. It was really thought-provoking. And I think lots will definitely relate to it. And because I think many of us have been lucky to go on these holidays or visited somewhere, haven't we, where things have been places that have really meant a lot to us. And I think for me, I, I, I really long for California. Now, I know that's not a city and it's a state, but... I, I just like long for being able to like drive through it again. So I went there for my 30th, which was, yeah, three years ago and did a bit of a, a road trip. And I just, I, so when I, whenever I do kind of try and do any mindfulness or a meditation or if like my anxiety is crazy high and I, and I want to try and do like a safe place meditation, the place that it always takes me back to is driving down uh, south on the Pacific Coast Highway. And it's just so soothing for me. And it, I feel like I left a part of me mm. there, like when, when I left and I just, I just close my eyes and I can, like, I can go back there in my mind. And I just think it's just one of those places that just captured so much for me. Plus, I think I was born to drink wine and eat seafood <laughs> like, there we go. on the coast. There so we this, like, that's what I'm living for. But uh, yeah, it's just, and I, I, I feel like I'm getting like emotional thinking about it now. It was just one of those, like, I don't know, like it wasn't even life changing in a way because nothing particularly happened. Just, I just felt like welcomed and home and yeah, just yeah. really, a really strange feeling, really strange. But what about yourself? Have you got somewhere as well? Or? I hadn't thought about it until I read the tweet, but yeah, definitely. Um, for me, it's at Cape Town mm. in South Africa. So I took a, a year out um, in my penultimate year of training um, and worked in South Africa for a year. And I, I didn't work, not for a year, for nine months. And I didn't work in Cape Town. I worked in um, a former township uh, in the Northwest province near the Kalahari Desert, like the most rural place that you could go mm. to. Um, but uh, no, Cape Town, it was just something, I can't even explain it. As soon as I got there, I just felt, I just felt home. And mm. I don't know if it was the the city itself or whether it, I just really loved where I was in my life at that time. Yeah, that's a good point. So I don't know yeah. if it was the city or if it's just a memory of who I was. So um, I remember it was the first time I felt I was stepping off the treadmill. So mm. at the end of GP training, I had a bit of a panic because I felt like I'd gone through school, I'd gone through medical school, then it's your FY years, your ST years, and everything was so planned out. And mm. it felt really claustrophobic. And then it was my penultimate year. And I thought, oh my gosh, is that's it. Like, it's is, is that the end? Is this what I've been working for? Is, is yeah. this everything? Um, like what have I actually done that's been completely independent and for myself and I almost felt like I'd almost been okay this is going to sound really weird <laughs> I went on this like a this psychiatry mental health course like in my training and all right bear with me on this, this is a bit of a long-winded story and there was something one of the trainers this GP I think he was this GP and he said um, what he says to patients is imagine imagine your life as a train and he goes, where are you sitting on that train? He goes, are you the driver? 
And are you seeing all the paths clearly and making those decisions? Or are you a passenger Mm. on that train and actually just allowing the train to continue and you're just watching your life go past? Yeah. And it just clicked. Like, oh my gosh. Yes. That's that's me. I'm not in front. I'm the passenger. And my life is my life has been planned out since as soon as I got into medical school. My life has been actually before then, GCSEs, A levels, my life is planned out. Mm. Um and it was the first time I was oh, got out of the passenger seat and, you know, went oh, to the no, driver's that's really seat. Nice. That's no, really and, good. You know, I walked off and I just remember like landing in Cape Town and just feeling that sense of freedom. Like I mm. wasn't chained to the job. I just felt, I felt free. Um, yeah. And maybe that changed how I saw things around me. But, um, mm. but yeah, Cape Town for me. That's, that's a really good point because I think, on, on two accounts so what you were saying about finding it quite difficult to explain what it was I think that sums up lots of people's feelings perfectly about these places that they feel this really like pull to because often it you can't explain it it's not one thing it's not like this monument that you visited it's not this one person that you spoke to it's not this one photograph that you took it's just like this feeling of this being feeling. there and it's and it's so hard to describe to someone and, and you just hope that they would go there and feel something similar to yeah. you and um and what you were saying about the train as well I think that just resonates so much about with the pandemic and what we've all been through and what are going through because lots of us in the pandemic apart from the government have literally just yeah. have to watch time and life pass us by like we've not been able to do anything and there was actually a really um a really kind of thought-provoking tweet from uh ny suri that's her twitter handle as well who um said the pandemic has fundamentally changed so much in me i think i wonder i, I think i wonder how many of us that is true for mm-hmm. and um yeah, I I do feel like, yeah, the pandemic has kind of completely changed who I am. And I think it's in two different ways. So it's definitely impacted me in a very negative way. I didn't even think it was possible to get more anxious than what mm. I am through the pandemic or what I am now. Um, but I saw kind of new heights and darker places than I've ever experienced before. Um, and that was, you know, all about kind of worrying about what was going to happen to family members, about work, about, you know, close friends, you know, essentially vulnerable people. But then on the flip side, it also gave me this bit of um this bit of a like oh fuck that attitude um in the way that I just I was realizing like what was important and that I realized that without sounding like a cliche life was too short to not do these things so you know like those big career decisions or you know those things I really wanted to do in life I just thought oh my god like this could happen again I could lose three years of my life again and not do any of these things so it's just like trying to find those opportunities now to to get out there isn't it and do what matters to you 100% does as it do you feel changed at all by it well thing is I um at the start of the pandemic I joined Twitter so I'm not sure how much the pandemic has changed me and how much Mm. Twitter has changed me as well yeah that's a good point yeah Twitter has had um a really huge impact on my life um yeah personally and professionally um a lot of the professional opportunities I've had and connections that I've made um have only been through Twitter it's been like a eye-opener for me and then the personal connections that I've made and um 
can I talk about Bella's tweet? Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh, of course. Yeah. Um, so um, there was a really lovely tweet. This is my favourite tweet of the week, I have to say. Yeah, I really um, like this. By uh, Bella uh, Roschetti again. And she, she put, at the risk of sounding lame, I've just realised something that I've never thought of before. Twitter is one of the very few ways I have found it easy to make friends as an adult. And I think that's great. I mean, I mean, we, we yeah. met through Twitter. People, people know that, you know, our relationship yeah, is yeah, through Twitter. And it's a friendship that I really, really value in, in my life. And that too, that's, yeah. it's not Twitter dependent now, obviously. It's, yeah, you know, you're the person that I call when I'm upset or if I'm going through something, you, you yeah, know, you're the yeah. person who, who I call it. And, it, you know, and it, I think it's fair to say that we probably would never have met if it we wasn't wouldn't. through Twitter. Because I can't see how our paths would ever have crossed. Like, we wouldn't, because we, we yeah. live so far away from each other. So Absolutely. Um, and yeah, it's really it's really special. And I think similar to you, I, I, I joined Twitter like over 10 years ago and didn't really understand it. And it was only in the pandemic that I was living alone, having an incredibly difficult time and was really craving connection and went back onto it and found this wonderful community and, and, you know, I met people like you and Dr. Majay and obviously we don't call it Dr. Majay. We, we <laughs> um, but yeah, like, and all these like wonderful relationships and, you know, obviously then getting to know Thurusha and Imran and having this opportunity. And it's just like, I don't know. It's, I think it's very hard to describe to people again who haven't experienced it. And there is sometimes this connotation of like, oh, you met friends on the internet. I've got no bloody shame. Yeah, I love it. Same. Absolutely love it. I don't it. think I could have even coped professionally without the connections I'd made on mm. Twitter. So like no. Simon Hodes, Selva, Sean Hussein, Iron Patch, like all of those people, I, I, I mm. genuinely, I have learned so much from. I'm so grateful to them, but also yeah. the professional support that they have given me for no benefit really of nice. their own. You know, yeah. that's just the mark of a, re- a really true, truly good person, yeah, isn't it? that's really good. Yeah, um, it is. And I think that's probably a really good thing to end, end on there, on. isn't it? Um, and we just wanted to mention as well, well, we wanted to wish Sean and Ben, ben Lovell, Lovell. Um, to get well soon because from Twitter, we've obviously seen that they're going through some health things at the moment. So we really do wish you well. Obviously, they've been... Uh, previous guests on the podcast and they're two people that we've got a lot of respect and admiration for so yeah we really do wish you both well we do indeed and um is that it then love is that, it. are we done we're done awesome we're done so oh, yeah I'm i guess feeling really like mushy i, I don't know that. me too it's been quite an emotional ending to I this know. Pod- we really yes. do care about you know you make connections and you genuinely really care about everyone so absolutely oh, and congratulations safe. again congratulations. Yeah, for... and, um, everything that everyone's achieved yeah. and raising um, a glass to put a friend a yeah I'll, just, I'll raise a pen Whoop. <laughs> <laughs> um yes thank you so much for listening to us once again um commiserations if you were expecting the yeah we're sorry else. about that <laughs> you got us instead um but yeah normal service shall resume very very soon will do okay indeed. thanks take everyone care. take care bye bye